Hey podcast listeners, welcome back to another episode of EmigCast. This is part two in a series where we're going to talk to Dr. Cusin more about identifying methemoglobinemia, some common pitfalls, and what it's like to go on to fellowship. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to listen to that first as some background. So what are the giveaways to methemoglobinemia? Yeah, so methemoglobinemia is a you know, pretty clear clinical sort of syndrome slash toxidrome, if you want to call it that. Um, cyanosis is one of the main things, which is just simply the patient looks blue. And then the other test questions that may or may not, you know, be as obvious in real life, though we're clearly present in these two cases, are a chocolate brown appearance to the blood um, and an oxygen saturation of 85% that doesn't correct on oxygen. And, you know, in real life, maybe it'll be 83, maybe it'll be 86. My two patients, one was literally 85, the other was 80. It's interesting because what it is, um, I always like to say, you know, I think so much of toxicology and so at least so much of the perception of toxicology as being like where all the smart people go is just that you learn all these weird little like exceptions to tests and funky little trivia things. And, you know, I'm not going to complain, but people perceive that as brilliance and intelligence. So, all right, cool. I just like memorize this thing. But um, the hypoxia that you see on an oxygen saturation reading machine monitor, also known as a monitor, the uh, hypoxia seen with uh, methemoglobinemia is actually an error in measurement by the pulse ox itself. It's not a true hypoxia. And the reason for that is that the oxygen saturation that you see on a monitor that comes from the little red light that goes on the patient's finger or earlobe or whatever, it's just a computer absorbing reading wavelengths and then um, kind of doing a calculation. And it reads two wavelengths um, that sometimes I know off the top of my head today. I don't. I want to say 680 nanometers and the other one is something else, but basically the wavelength of deoxygenated hemoglobin and oxygenated hemoglobin. And it does a quick little calculation for how much of which is present and spits out an oxygen saturation. The wavelength, like the absorption of met hemoglobin falls into the hypoxic range. And it has nothing to do with actual oxygen level. It's just the wavelength that the uh, cyanosis causes. So um, a met hemoglobin level of 10% would cause essentially no symptoms systemically, but it's enough to have somebody start looking a little bit cyanotic. And so much more than that, you're going to just get a SAT of 85%. And so that's why it doesn't correct if you put them on oxygen. It's not that their oxygen saturation is 85%. It's that the machine cannot accurately report their oxygen saturation for you. If you wanted to know their oxygen saturation, you would need to send an ABG. Um, so chocolate brown blood, an O2 sat of 85% that doesn't correct on oxygen and a blue looking patient, like that's met hemoglobinemia for you. How do you monitor progression? So it sounds like in this case, we gave a couple of doses of methylene blue. Where, what is the diagnostic criteria you're going off if you can't trust your O2 sat? Well, the first thing I would actually say, once you've reached the point that you say, this patient has met hemoglobinemia, they are symptomatic enough that I'm going to treat them. Their level is above 20%. Usually we would 
recommend treatment, um, the first thing that you want to do is actually take the pulse ox off of them because one of the things that can happen if you were to leave it on is you get you might see their oxygen saturation drop even further. That is also artifactual because methylene blue is aptly named. It is also blue, and the wavelength associated with um, the readings for methylene blue can make it look like their sat dropped further. We had one case, as an aside, um, not that long after this, which also happened in Albany, Oregon, Interestingly, totally different kind of methemoglobin case, though. It was a uh, two-year-old who started sucking on a tube of teething gel, which has uh, benzocaine in it, which is a much more commonly encountered offender with methemoglobinemia. And she was extremely altered, this poor little two-year-old, and she got intubated, and they gave her methylene blue and watched her stats plummet. And there was several minutes of total panic happening, I think, in the in the resuscitation room wherever she was because they had somehow missed the piece about not watching the sat after you give methylene blue and they thought that something was wrong with her tube and it just turned out that she was getting the therapeutic. So so typically most things that cause met hemoglobinemia, you're going to see your patient just clinically get better relatively quickly. Um, it works pretty fast. Most of these things like bupivacaine or, you know, poppers that I was talking about earlier, you're not going to be redosing it. And in fact, a, a textbook would tell you that if you have a patient who you think has met hemoglobinemia and you give them two doses of methylene blue and they don't seem to be improving at all, you need to step back and think, what am I missing here? Is something else going on? Is there more than met hemoglobinemia present? Because the vast majority of met hemoglobin inducers will be very quickly and efficiently treated by methylene blue. Is there any reason not to give methylene blue? So methylene blue um, is contraindicated in G6PD deficiency, which probably makes you want to go, okay, great, thanks. Because, you know, think of all the times you're sitting with the patient and you say, what, do you have any medical problems? Why, doctor, I happen to have G6PD deficiency. Like nobody ever knows that they have it. Um, that is a contraindication for it, though, because um, you need G6PD to activate. So the way that methylene blue works is it is activated um, into leukomethylene blue, and then leukomethylene blue is a reducing agent um, that will reduce your methemoglobin. Um, but you need G6PD to make that happen. So not only does it not work for those patients, but if the methylene, methylene blue itself with some irony is an oxidizing agent. So too much methylene blue can cause all the same problems as whatever your original offender is. And so someone with G6PD deficiency, you're maybe just kind of throwing gas on the fire. Fortunately, there's not a lot of alternatives you can offer them. Um, the only one that's coming to mind right now is hyperbarics. I think there's an article on ascorbic acid. Ascorbic acid historically used to be something that they would talk about using, but it has never been shown to really have any benefit whatsoever in acute methemoglobin poisoning. You know, it doesn't actually work. Yeah, I was interested to see that when I went and did my, you know, literature dive trying to come up with ways to manage these guys with this crazy refractory methemoglobinemia. And yeah, ascorbic acid, you know, is a reducing agent in theory, but um, just like it doesn't work to cure the common cold, it doesn't work to 
treat methemoglobinemia either. Yeah, there's a small case series in the in an up-to-date article. Puerto Rico, they had a couple of kids, but it's too slow. It's like 24 Yeah, hours. exactly. And that's one of the reasons why it, it just doesn't have a role in managing an acute process. It's it's slow acting. And like a lot of these things, I'm not going to say it doesn't do anything. Like I'm sure, you know, there's somebody somewhere who's had a positive benefit from ascorbic acid. Um, just like I'm sure it cured all those colds I took it for before I knew that it didn't work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like it doesn't work as a reducing agent, but um, I think in the 80s, I found more literature than I expected about ascorbic acid being tried for all kinds of different things. And it just, yeah, it doesn't work fast. So it it does reduce, just not fast enough to treat a sick patient. And how fast is the test for uh, methemoglobinemia? And, and assuming you're away from the urban centers, is this something that you can do at the bedside? Is this a special lab? Yeah. So testing, it's done on the co-oximeter, which is you know, a machine that is going to do your ABGs and your carbon monoxide levels and your methemoglobin levels. So if your hospital has one of those machines, which hopefully it does, you can get it pretty quickly. But I can think off the top of my head of one hospital locally that um, I won't name in case I'm getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I've never tried to send them at hemoglobin level there, but like that hospital actually has to send out their carboxyhemoglobins to another lab, which is pretty crazy. If you think about, you know, you're trying to get the information quickly to decide if you need to um, send someone to hyperbaric chamber. So um, I would imagine that that lab can't do a methemoglobin level either, but it should come back pretty quickly because it is, you know, the turnaround for as long as you have access to the co-oximeter, it's, you know, a turnaround that's on approximately the same order of time as just doing an ABG. Are there any common pitfalls in managing methemoglobinemia? The first thing that I would think of off the top of my head that would could potentially be a big deal would be somebody getting worked up about the pulse ox. They see a patient who has a set of 85% on room air, they put them on 100% non-rebreather, they don't seem to be getting better, oh my god, I have to intubate this patient. That could go down a whole pathway of focusing on the hypoxia because, you know, we're trained as emergency physicians, ABCs first. Um, you know, if you've correctly identified methemoglobinemia, I think at that point it becomes fairly streamlined, you know, like so many things in emergency medicine and toxicology specifically, um, recognizing it is the hardest part. So yeah, just remember, you know, I would hope people would keep that little, you know, the little neuron primed on the side, like, wow, this person looks blue and they're shedding 85% and they're not getting better. Do I think they're having hypoxic respiratory failure or wait a minute? is this maybe methemoglobinemia? And that one podcast I listened to that one time with that wackadoodle talking about those dudes and those their Mountain Dew and their drugs, like I remember something, there's some reason that it's not a true pulse ox or a true stat. So I guess I wanted to provide this one plug for calling the poison center in general if you, yes. if you want to. But uh, so suppose an ER physician's listening to the story, wants to come up to speed on this on this topic, where should they turn for the best information? You know, since you brought it up, having just, I have just learned that apparently my case is referenced in the up-to-date chapter. Um, so up-to-date, just kidding. So I, I'm a big fan if you're talking about, you know, where can people just learn more? Um, Goldfrank's 
textbook of toxicology is usually the thing that I'm going to grab first when I want to just brush up on something. There's another handbook that's a little bit more accessible. Um, we call it the Lang handbook. It's just sort of, you know, like a quick reference. Um, but clearly calling the poison center, certainly if we're talking about resources for emergency physicians, um, poison centers are all staffed a little bit differently depending on, you know, what state you're in, what system you're in. You know, here in Oregon, we have uh, nurses with special certifications who answer the phones, but we have a physician available 24 hours a day. So if you ever have a question about anything, even if it's not necessarily related to a patient right in front of you, you know, as a physician, it's always completely cool and encouraged for you to call the Poison Center and just ask to speak to the medical backup. And you can have a physician-level conversation and work through differential diagnoses or management issues. And that's actually really fun for us, too. So we like those calls. Preferably if they can happen, you know, outside the hours of 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. But we're always available 24 hours a day and thrilled to discuss it. So what is the career path to toxicology? So toxicology is a board-certified subspecialty of emergency medicine. Um, you also could sit for the tox boards through pediatrics or through preventive medicine. So what that means is if you did a residency in one of those fields and chose to pursue a fellowship in toxicology, you would be eligible to sit for the boards. Um, the vast majority of toxicologists are emergency physicians, and it's sort of evolved that way over, you know, 40, 50 years of poison centers and this sort of field growing just because I think emergency physicians are naturally drawn to the, you know, stabilization of acute overdoses. And toxicology covers a lot of other things, but that particular area of interest, you know, the stabilization of acutely poisoned patients who are sick goes really nicely with emergency medicine. Um, I don't think I've met any preventive medicine toxicologists yet. I have met some pediatrics toxicologists. So it's, yeah, fellowship, um, two-year fellowship. It's a really small field. I think there's something like 400 practicing toxicologists in the U.S. So uh, there's not that many fellowships. My last count, I think there was 27. I'm not sure if that's a totally accurate number right now. But, and they're all very different. So you can be any kind of toxicologist you want. You can focus on inpatient medicine. You could focus on occupational medicine. You can focus on prevention and pediatrics. Uh, you can focus on emergency department intervention. So, you know, where a future toxicologist decides to train is going to be just a lot dictated by their personal kind of slant and what they prefer. What about the toxicology program here at OHSU? So um, OHSU, I mean, I love our fellowship. Of course, I'm biased. I came here for fellowship thinking I was going to do a two-year fellowship and take off. And that was uh, 2013. I'm still here. I'm now in faculty. Um, I think we have an amazing group. It's definitely unique because the Oregon Poison Center, which is housed here at OHSU and is very closely affiliated with the Department of Emergency Medicine. So when I talk about the Oregon Poison Center or OHSU, they're kind of one and the same in my mind. But the Oregon Poison Center, we cover the entire state of Oregon. We also function as the Alaska Poison Center. 
and the Guam Poison Center. So really what that means is if you call the Poison Center in either of those places, you will be talking to staff in Oregon. And we also have a very close collaboration with the Utah Poison Center, who uh, has, um, yeah, our currently our medical director is the acting medical director there as well. So we do daily teleconference rounds with them. And then on the physician side of things, we provide the medical backup for about half of the month for them. So what that means is for us here, the toxicologists here, our fellows, our emergency medicine residents who rotate through, and then the faculty, at any given time, you might be receiving a call from Utah, Oregon, Alaska, or Guam. And just based on the geographical diversity represented there, you can imagine we get some really different kinds of cases. And that's really cool. That was one of the things that made me really interested in training here was knowing that I'd not only be getting weird calls about weird stuff that happens in Guam and Alaska, but the management considerations are so unique because like during the winter time in Alaska, there are these tiny villages that are completely inaccessible to anything, you know, and there's a storm going on. So you can't medevac a person and you just have to kind of figure out ways to address managing a particular overdose outside of a hospital with you know, the village health aid may have an eighth grade level education and no CPR. So it's just some really interesting things that you, you know, aren't going to come up if you train in Chicago or New York or, you know, Atlanta or I don't know, I'm just naming big cities right now. But not to say, I mean, those other places have phenomenal fellowship programs as well. It's just we've got some kind of unique stuff here. One other unique cool thing about Oregon is this is basically the one place in the U.S. that pretty much every kind of poison mushroom grows. We've got them all. So let's suppose that we have uh, one of our lovely local emergency medicine residents listening to this and they're contemplating possibly doing a fellowship, maybe, maybe not. Would there be any reasons to not go into a toxicology fellowship? Well, so reasons not to do toxicology, this is, I'm going to double negative you here. The not reason to not do it is because you don't think you're smart enough. That is what every single person says. That's what I said before I did the toxicology fellowship. Um, people think, I think tox is really cool. I'm just not smart enough. What Rob Hendrickson, who is the fellowship director here and like my personal mentor, he's amazing, amazing dude. What he always says is, the fellowship is what makes you smart. You know, you have two years to study and learn these things and none of us knew them before. And we learn them as part of the fellowship. And that's really true. So anybody who's interested but is doing that, oh God, Cusin is so smart. I mean, they all know, I'm, I feel like I'm the best example there is for why you don't have to be that smart to be a toxicologist. They all know Shana could do it, I could do it. But um, yeah, so that shouldn't be a reason to not do it. Unlike a lot of boarded subspecialties, it is very difficult to be a full-time toxicologist. There's just not as much work in the world. So most of us do other things. The most common thing that you would see, I think if you just went and surveyed toxicologists around the country, is that they're on faculty at emergency medicine institutions and then do some toxicology as well. And that's what applies to myself. You know, my full-time job, so to speak, is being emergency medicine faculty, but then I also get to do some talks. So 
it's not, you know, unlike in internal medicine, if you do your residency in IM and then you do a cardiology fellowship, you're now, you know, a subspecialist who practices cardiology. That's just not going to happen in toxicology. So if that's what you're looking for, you probably shouldn't have been an emergency physician in the first place because there's not a lot of pathway to anything in emergency medicine where you get to do only that. Um, yeah, that's really the main thing. There are some toxicologists who work as full-time toxicologists and who don't have any EM clinical practice anymore, but doing that means that you're going to be, have to be willing to open your doors to a different kind of patient population, like, you know, people who believe their neighbors are poisoning them. Or, you know, that that was a little snarky, but also a little not. We have one one uh, physician um, locally in Portland who has an he used to be a toxicologist with the Poison Center and was an emergency physician, and he sort of transitioned later in his career to he has his entire practice is um, he's a third party like independent consultant for lack of a better term for. Uh, He's retained by employers who have employees claiming an on-the-job toxicologic injury. So they were exposed to something at work that caused problems, and they're basically suing the employer for coverage. And he is brought in as a third party to do an independent assessment of if he believes that their symptoms were caused by an occupational exposure. From having spent some time at that clinic, I can tell you that a very large percentage were not caused by their on-the-job exposure. And I'll just leave it at that. Except, you know, occasionally you do have some, like, really, you know, hardworking person who developed a really horrible, like, occupational asthma due to some known asthma inducers they were working around for 30 years, and now they're older and they're having a lot of pulmonary issues, and that's 100% legit. Do you have any advice for any medical students in the audience that are thinking a life of glory in the ER and going into emergency medicine? All right. So words of wisdom for med students thinking of going into emergency medicine. Um, I guess the first thing would be like, check your glory factor. I think that you know, I was just as guilty of anybody else of imagining before I really got into EM that I was going to be saving at least one life per shift. Um, and that's probably not as representative of the reality of emergency medicine. Um, but I think general advice for how to pick a specialty, you know, think about the things you like about it the most and think about, most importantly, the things that you don't like about it the most. Um, I know for me, when I was deciding what I wanted to go into, I had it down to two fields, emergency medicine and OB. And I had some pretty strong pros and cons for both of them. And aside from anything else, my biggest con that I very quickly realized was never going to work for me was clinic, like period. I did a, as a fourth year medicine, or sorry, fourth year medical student, I did a sub-I in EM and a sub-I in OB in my second day of gestational diabetes clinic. I was like, I can't stand this. I can't stand clinic. I can't stand health maintenance. Like, that's just not interesting to me. I love delivering babies. I love crash C-sections. I love emergencies. I hate clinic. My personal cons for emergency medicine were orthopedics and pediatrics. Those are pretty big parts of EM. Um, 
but I could live with those way better than I could live with having a life of clinic. And that was a very clear decision for me. So I think just always think through that thing you don't like. Um, one thing that comes to mind, uh, somebody, a student I knew a while ago who was really trying to talk himself into emergency medicine, but kept getting back to his least favorite thing about being a med student was, quote, dealing with all the social issues. And there's nothing wrong with not enjoying dealing with social issues, never mind the fact that you are going to have to deal with them to a certain extent in any field you go into. But if you know about yourself deep down, that dealing with those kinds of things drives you nuts, you're going to be a miserable emergency physician. Similarly, or on, I guess the more positive spin, there are a few things that all emergency physicians I know love. One is draining abscesses. If you don't get a sick thrill from a really satisfying IND, think for a moment if this is the right field for you. Number one. And number two, on some level, we all love crazy drunks. You just got to love talking to crazy drunk people. That's a big part of your job. Just think about those things you really love and really hate and see how they line up with any given specialty. I think that's an important thing. There's going to be frustrations no matter what field you go into, and there's a burnout in every field. And emergency medicine clearly has a higher rate of burnout than other fields. So, you know, and we could talk for an hours about that. We don't even need to get into that. But just, you know, make sure the things that to other people might drag them down are things that you enjoy. Drunks and INDs. What's the uh, best advice you've had as a medical student? And if you could contrast, with, what's the worst advice you've had as a medical that student? That I received? Mm -hmm. Some of the best advice I got as a medical student was to just try to step back and remember that you are playing a long game. And that is incredibly difficult to do. Um, medical school is so grueling in different ways at every stage. First, you have your first two years where you're just like studying all the time and you become so obsessed with your grades and, you know, with uh, learning things and you never believe you're going to master anything and you don't even remember why you're here because you've not been taking care of patients. Oh God, if only I get to this next stage, where I get to start my clinical years. I'm going to do some clinical care. It's going to finally be great. And then you get there and you very quickly get the sense that you're just like, annoying everybody or you're adding to your team's burden or you know some attending is horribly rude to you and it's completely inexcusable and you don't know if it's you or if it's just that they're having a bad day or you know whatever it is it's just like not fun and you're jumping through hoops that you're like why am I jumping through these hoops this is a total waste of my time but let me do this with a smile on my face and try to convince you there's nothing else I'd rather be doing and you're so miserable and all you can think is god it's going to be better when I'm an intern and then you get to intern year and you feel stupid all the time and you're exhausted and you've never stayed up this much. And this just goes on and on and on. And it's very easy to get into a pattern where you make your decision based on what that next step is. And you legitimately have no ability sometimes to step back and think what your life is going to be like in five years or what your life is going to be like in 10 years. All you know is you want this phase to end. So understanding you're never going to be able to envision what your life will be like as an attending emergency physician when you're a second year med student and you've done like one precepting month in EM and you think it seemed cool, you know, but maybe it's just because you had a really nice preceptor and they didn't make you feel stupid. You know, I know it's impossible to imagine what your life's going to be like as an attending and I would never expect anybody to be able to do that. But just try to remember it is a long game. You have to live the life you have now. You have to find ways to not 
keep completely 100% suspending or delaying your gratification or else you're going to go crazy and you're going to be one of those miserable people who you never wanted to be when you were a student and you saw the cranky attending and were like, I won't be like that. Um, and also, yeah, just try to remind yourself not to just decide what sounds like the next best step, but what the best like long, long range plan is. And sometimes you have to involve a mentor for that. And don't be shy about, you know, finding yourself a mentor. If you really like connect with somebody who, who is farther along the path to just kind of help you kind of keep a sense of where you're going. And as far as the worst advice, I don't know if this was advice this is just like a hard thing that I heard from an attending that I realized many years later was actually good advice, but damn, it was, it was really shitty at the time. Oops, I swore. This was a trauma surgery attending who was a bit bombastic, and I was really thinking about going into surgery, and he took me aside and said that my weakness was that I was a very friendly, outgoing person, and I made everybody like me. And that it was his job to beat the likability out of me to make me a better doctor. And it's interesting because I've had a long time to think about this. And there's the negative part of it. And then there's the part that I think maybe after 10 years of therapy, just kidding, I didn't go to therapy for this. But after 10 years of, you know, thinking about it, I think what he was trying to say was, don't fall back on your personality and being charming to try to compensate for areas of weakness, which is legitimate. And it's something that I, as now a teacher, I have noticed when learners do, when they're really friendly and outgoing, they can try to hide their deficits by being friendly and outgoing. And so while that's good advice, I think that it was really horrible, mean advice from a surgeon who was kind of a jerk telling me that I should be less friendly, that it would make me a better doctor. So just stopping off on a, on a lighter foot, what is the most ridiculous, weirdest, oddest call you've had as a toxicologist? Um, I mean, there've been so many. And of course you also have to think, what are the ones that don't make it up to the physician that the nurses just like giggle um, the first thing that popped into mind, which isn't that weird, it was just like, it actually completely stumped me, was a call from an adult care facility where they're, you know, so like a, an adult group home sort of thing. Um, I truly didn't know the answer. One of their residents had whipped off his Depends and flung feces at another resident and it had hit them in the face. And the first resident had a history of hepatitis and they didn't know which. And they wanted to know what they needed to do. And I had no idea. I actually ended up telling them they needed to call the health department. But, you know, and just even telling the story, I'm just seeing adults in diapers flinging feces at each other. Clearly there are way weirder things people can ingest than feces, but I don't know. That's a pretty good story. Another another good one. Again, this is not that weird, but I just still can't believe that people do this. We I had a call. There was a guy who had a fight with his girlfriend and decided that he was going to show her and he was going to go outside and kill himself. And he ate an entire stock of foxglove and apparently had done this before after a fight. So so that's like the my question is, why is there still foxglove around when he's already eaten a whole foxglove plant to kill himself once? So for some of our listeners, so foxglove, 
um, is an aminoglycoside that grows, grows on the side of most of our lovely highways about a fourth of the year. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, our, our standing joke, it's my favorite flower um, for a lot of reasons. Um, but like the standing joke, our one of our toxicologists here tried to grow some foxglove in his office and it wouldn't grow. And he's like, so it grows on the side of the freeway, but I can't cultivate it. So this was somebody's garden. They had foxglove in their garden in their backyard. And this guy kept eating foxglove to show his girlfriend how upset he was. Again, there are weirder things people can ingest, but it's just I try to imagine an adult male standing over a plant, just like angrily shoving flowers into his mouth. He actually did get symptomatic, by the way. But and then to hear that this is not the first time he's attempted to prove his displeasure by eating foxglove. I imagine that that gentleman will have a short history <laughs> given his <laughs> affection for the foxglove. Dr. Kewson, thank you so much. Absolutely.